Welcome to the All Souls Forum. Tonight's presentation is entitled, Skills Devoted to Nuclear Weapons Are Needed to Combat Climate Change, with Tim and Wallace. Good morning and welcome to the Forum at All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church. My name is Spencer Graves. I'm a member of the Forum Committee. This forum is a platform for the discussion of sig significant issues, especially those which involve ethical values in the contemporary world. It has been doing this since 1943. We ask the speaker to present for 30 minutes. This is followed by questions and answers to fill an hour. Today, Timon Wallace will explain how the skills devoted to nuclear weapons are needed to combat climate change. Timon is the director of NuclearBan.us. He holds a PhD in peace studies and has been involved in peace-building projects in North and South America, Europe, Africa, and Asia. His new book on warheads to windmills was released only last month. In it, he cites uh, sources that document the, how the total life cycle cost per megawatt hour of wind and solar is already less than the, than the costs of fossil fuels and nuclear. Moreover, wind and nuclear are new technologies, and their unit costs are still declining um, relatively rapidly due to what are known as experience curve effects, by which unit costs of almost, almost anything tend to come down roughly at a constant percentage for each doubling of the uh, cumulative production. Fossil fuels currently win in the marketplace because they have substantive control of the media and the political process. That has so far allowed them to keep infant industry subsidies when they should be taxed in proportion to the damage caused by, the, by um, global warming. Nuclear, appear, uh, nuclear appears cost-effective in the market because many of the costs are hidden, buried in the uh, defense budget or energy or congressional back black budget or unfunded insurance costs secured by you and I, our tax dollars. Moreover, Simon argues that the people currently making nuclear weapons in the U.S. and elsewhere had the skills needed to combat global warming. Instead, they are being used increase the risks of nuclear Armageddon. So Timon will talk for roughly a half hour and then uh, open the floor for questions. Timon? Okay, thank you, Spencer. And um, thanks to those of you who have braved the, the cold weather. I know it's, um, it's uh, difficult getting out in the cold as well as um, uh, talking about issues that people don't want to talk about, like climate and nuclear war. Uh, I mean, these are these are topics that are that are difficult to discuss. People have a lot of um, views about them. Um, some of them are grounded in fact, and some aren't. Uh, so my my book, my new book, is is an attempt to really put all of the um, the facts and figures in one place and make it accessible to people, and um, provide the the primary sources as far as we could, so that you can follow up further. To, to get the information that we need. There's so much misinformation and misunderstanding about these issues. Um, that's the first problem. But um, and I do want to talk very specifically about uh, Kansas City, because I know that's where you are. I know there's 
uh, roughly 7,000 people working for the nuclear, uh, the, the National Security Campus uh, in Kansas City, which is one of the main right. centers for, for, for building and maintaining nuclear weapons in this country. Um, but I want to give a little bit of context first. Um, as Spencer was uh, was describing, um, you know, we're looking at these two existential threats to humanity: climate change, which most people are are more familiar with these days, and especially younger people are very concerned about the climate. Um, we're seeing it already, you know, right before our eyes as um, extreme weather events and so on. But the the prospects for for survival as a species. Um, are pretty grim if we don't really address this at the level that's required. Um, the Biden administration, as you all know, you know, passed a historic bill two years ago now, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, and they've done some other things to to make a start. You know, that that was that alone was the biggest uh, investment in clean energy ever in the U.S. But it's still a, a drop in the bucket, literally, and we've got to talk about. You know what else is needed to actually get us to where we need to be to save the planet from, from climate catastrophe, and of course, nuclear weapons have been with us for seventy-five years now. Or um, can't keep track of the, the year now. It's twenty twenty-four, isn't it? <laughs> but um, you know, people have forgotten about the, the the danger and the risk that these weapons carry, and uh, every year that goes by, that risk actually increases. It doesn't decrease; it increases, and um, we were just talking before this uh, this program about the, a recent um, article in the in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. As you probably all know, there's a doomsday clock which the nuclear scientists put out every year. It's not as scientific as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and they're you know they're they've got very hard figures that are collected from all all around the world. The nuclear scientists have to rely on judgment call as to how much the risk is to the planet from a possible nuclear war, whether on purpose or by accident. Um, and they've been putting out this clock every year. During the Cold War, it varied from three minutes to 12 minutes to midnight, um, depending on the, 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 um, the, the relations between the, the two superpowers and the, the uh, issues that were going on at the time. Uh, as you probably all know, it's now closer to midnight than it was ever during the Cold War. And we've got a new um, clock being revealed uh, next week. So we'll see. But I'm very doubtful that it's going to go further away from midnight. If, you know, we're, we're facing such huge, dangerous situations with the um, breakdown of relations, the breakdown of treaties, the wars, hot wars that are going on, not just, you know, in Ukraine, but now with Gaza and the potential for that spreading, you know, to other parts of the Middle East. I mean, we're in a very dangerous situation. There's no doubt about that. But there is hope. And my book is called Preventing Climate Catastrophe and Nuclear War because we have the we have the answers to, to get out of this. We we simply do. And um, you know, the reason that we're not uh was alluded to by Spencer just now, you know, we we've got companies like Honeywell International, for example, making billions and billions of dollars on uh, these programs, whether it's, you know, nuclear weapons contracts or whether it's fossil fuel subsidies. I mean, these huge companies make a lot of money out of these um, problems and they use some of that money, a tiny fraction of that money to lobby Congress, to 
literally bribe them with re-election finance that they need to get re-elected with uh, advice and reports and think tanks to sort of prop up their own positions. I mean, we're, we're in a very, very uh, corrupt political system, which is run by these companies. And that's why we have uh, nuclear weapons. There's no other reason. Um, I mean, the, many other people have documented, you know, the, the, the errors in, in deterrence thinking and the the misunderstandings about the whole uh, you know nuclear weapons uh, program uh, opinion polls have continu- continuously shown that people don't want nuclear weapons they want a world without nuclear weapons as many presidents have promised including the present one I mean you know the the United States is legally committed to eliminating its nuclear weapons. Uh, under the Non-Proliferation Treaty from 1968. And they, they promised to negotiate in good faith and at an early date. And that's, that's over 50 years ago. So, you know, the world is waiting. Uh, you know, we don't want to wait for an accident or a, a nuclear war before we get rid of these weapons. I mean, we've just got to do it. So that brings us to the to the question of jobs. Um as I said, there's you know, some of you may may directly work for the Honeywell, uh, the, the National Security um, Campus. There's about seven thousand people there, all together around the country. There's about one hundred and forty thousand people working directly on nuclear weapons um, for private companies and for some of these um, national security labs and so on at Los Alamos and so on. Now that's a lot of people, and they all have families, and they have communities that depend on the families, and the you know, and there's suppliers and people who make nuts and bolts who supply them, and so on. So it's a it's a lot of people. It's absolutely nothing compared to the country as a lot as a whole. We have approximately 165 million employees working in this country, so 140,000 is um, is less than. Um, Less than half a percent. <laughs> um, but um, but nevertheless, these are people that are you know that have jobs and we care about them. And um, same with the fossil fuel industry. I mean, there's more than a million working directly on fossil fuel extraction and so on, and many many millions more in the automotive industries and so on. But we need to move towards the green clean economy. I mean, you know, we we have to save the planet from climate. It's not it's not whether we will survive or not. We have to. I mean, that's our responsibility as a as a species, let alone as a country. Um and so, you know, the move as as Spencer also pointed out, you know, the, the costs of of wind power is is already less than any other source of energy for making electricity. And um I know you're technically in Missouri, but because your your city is called Kansas, I, I want I want to mention Kansas because Kansas actually has second most um, wind resources of in the entire country after Texas. I mean, Kansas has a lot of wind. I, I you know I haven't lived there. I, I presume you can vouch for that, but I mean they've estimated that Kansas alone could be producing as much wind energy. F- as the entire country is using right now for from electricity from all other sources, so we just need to develop those well, um, resources. You know, um, I I I did my the, the Warheads to Windmills book that I that I just but this was this is the third 
um, iteration of this uh, report, which got longer and longer because we want to have the details and make sure people have the sources to, to go to if they want to. But um, it started out as a report in 2019, and it was based on a UK report, which I um, knew about, you know, back in the, uh, I guess it was the 1990s. I mean, it was, wasn't, or no, 2000, maybe 2006 or something. Anyway, it was a few years ago. Um, they, a report came out called uh, Arms to Renewables. And it was a very detailed study of not just nuclear weapons, but in fact, you know, the, the armament uh, factories in, in the UK, in England, mostly, and um, the, how many workers were working there, what kinds of skills they uh, employed, and what was needed to move the UK to a green economy, to, to um, wind and solar. And in this case, um, tidal power. So it, the, the study showed that um, there were several thousand workers in the north of England uh, at a place called Barrow and Furness working on um, building nuclear submarines. I mean, nuclear missile submarines, uh, Trident submarines. Um, and those exact same people in the exact same place should, could be uh, building the largest tidal barrage in the world across the um, the bay the the Morecambe bay there and um you know the, and this report showed that the the people had the skills needed to work on this you know the marine marine engineering basically working on submarines they could be working on turbines instead or this tidal project um they wouldn't even have to move home you know and they wouldn't they wouldn't be earning less money there's you know they they worked it all out in great detail and i and i said well why don't we have that something like that here in the u.s and I couldn't find anything, so I started working on it. And, um, you know, we're, we're just a, a, a drop in the bucket in terms of what could be done in terms of research on the actual jobs, for instance, at the National Security Campus. Um, but I, I have done uh, a lot of research on this. And, uh, and if you just Google, um, I mean, if any, any of you here are, are looking for work, you may have already Googled jobs in Kansas City, and you'll find a lot of them at the National Security Campus. And if you look and what the what the requirements are for those jobs, I mean, you know, 99 out of 100 of them are looking for the same skills that we need to build the, the green economy. And I'm just going to show you, um, I can find the right page. So, you know, here's a here's a map of all the different nuclear weapons jobs. Um, that are currently being employed in the U.S. and here's where, where the the jobs that they could be working on to make electric vehicles, batteries, um, solar power, wind power, and so on. This this chart here. So if you if you buy a copy of the book or get it from your library, it's page two hundred and sixty three. There's a chart which says, you know, examples of uh, job application job descriptions for jobs that are that are being hired right now in Kansas City uh, National Security Campus and other other nuclear weapons um, places. For instance, a nuclear weapons security network implementation engineer. Well, as it says, it's an engineering position. The requirement is a BA in electrical or electronic engineering and some experience and so on. And the same requirement of engineering is also needed for wind turbine generator engineers, offshore wind engineering analysis, 
panelist, wind fleet engineer, electrical engineer, solar. I looked again at um, some jobs in the, um, so I mentioned, you know, submarines. So we've got nuclear propulsion engineer, nuclear engineer for the Navy, and so on. And that requires a BA in marine engineering or naval architecture. And again, those same job requirements are needed for wind project manager, marine system engineer, wave and tidal systems designer, postal engineer title, and so on and so on. You know, we've looked at the exact same skills. I mean, obviously there's one option to retrain people and, and um, you know, who are currently making nuclear weapons and give them other other skills to work in other areas. There's also, you know, many other options, including, you know, I mentioned there's 143,000 people working on nuclear weapons in this country. Well, if you gave every single one of them a million dollars, you'd still have billions left over if you stopped making nuclear weapons. I mean, you know, there's, there's lots of options here, but the skills that we need. So again, for solving the climate, for solving the nuclear weapons crisis, we just got to stop making nuclear weapons and get the other countries to do the same. And it's not as difficult as it sounds. It's the companies that are in the way of doing that. But there's nothing stopping us from just saying, no, we don't want these anymore. They don't protect us. They don't. They just make the world less safe, not more safe. But when it comes to climate, you know, we still have work to do. And, and that's why we need these people. It's not just, you know, let's find them a job and throw them a biscuit. It's actually, you know, we need these skills to save the planet from climate catastrophe. And uh, not only... Uh, engineers, for example, that I was just listing, you know, for, for building projects that we already know about. But as we all know, you know, the uh, to move to electric vehicles, when we have electric vehicles already on the road, but we need more advances in batteries, um, especially for light, for electric light. I mean, there are already planes, not big ones, but small planes, nine-seaters, that are flying now with electric motors run by batteries. They don't go very far, but they already exist. And we need to develop the, those technologies urgently. I mean, we need batteries that can, that can, that can take you know, aviation uh, many, many steps forward. We need batteries to store the electricity that's, you know, we all know that the sun doesn't shine every day and uh, the wind doesn't blow every day. So, you know, we need battery storage for that. We need other technologies. We need to develop much, much more um, small-scale wind resources, for, for example, because, um, you know, these gigantic turbines are great for, for um, harnessing uh, the wind, you know, in, on, on a large scale. But if we want to get every, every household, every farm, every, every school and hospital uh, producing their own electricity, we've got to we've got to develop a lot more capacity for smaller scale um, wind projects, for other kinds of solar, and as I mentioned, um, you know, these tidal tidal power. There's there's estimates that if we developed tidal and wave power, we could we could generate electricity, you know, unlimited amounts of electricity. Never mind nuclear fusion and all these pipe dreams that are that are decades away we could do this right now if we wanted to and we need the engineers we need the technicians we need the workers out there building these things um already you know wind turbine engineers are the are the fastest growing uh, uh job uh, category in the in the country because they're they're building these things they're you know offshore wind floating wind turbines there's all kinds of 
projects. And um, so, you know, that's that's the world that we're moving towards and that we need to move towards. And we just need to speed this up. We need the government doing this. We need incentives. Uh, Spencer mentioned the, the fossil fuel subsidies. That's nothing compared to the money pouring into the nuclear weapons um, business. I mean, it's a, these are both trillion dollar businesses that need to stop. Simple as that. We, we have to move away from these. And um, we've got treaties that are, that are uh, I mean, the nuclear ban treaty that uh, Spencer mentioned um, is already in existence. There's already 69 countries that are committed to it. And um, Honeywell, for example, is already breaking the law in some of these other countries. I mean, Mexico is, uh, has, has a big Honeywell uh, operation there. Mexico is a leader in the nuclear ban treaty. Um, haven't yet outlawed Honeywell from Mexico, but I mean, these companies are facing uh, legislative risk in these other countries. Ireland, which is another pioneer in the nuclear ban treaty, has already passed a law which makes it illegal to have anything to do with nuclear weapons in Ireland, and the penalty is up to life in prison. Um, so, you know, um, the the CEO of Honeywell, Darius Adamczyk, uh, I think he might have retired or is about to retire. But I mean, if he wants to go play golf in Ireland, um, he's risking life in prison, you know, as a as a, a, a CEO of a company that makes nuclear weapons. So, you know, this is where the world is going and we've got to go with it and we need to make these changes. Um, and, you know, we need governments behind us for this. We don't have the Biden administration yet. Um, we are working on bills in Congress. You know, we've got some members of Congress on board. We've got states uh, with resolutions and, and legislation. We've got loads of cities. Uh, I, I don't remember if Kansas City has passed any resolutions like the Back from the Brink or so on. But we have cities like New York City who have committed to divesting billions of pension funds from the nuclear weapons companies. We have a number of cities that have already done that and more on their way. And this is going to, you know, it's a wake-up call for Honeywell and other companies that, you know, th their their days are numbered if they don't move out of the nuclear weapons business and go back to making thermostats. So um, I've got five more minutes. Um, there's so many more things to talk about, but um, I thought I would just uh, quickly address the nuclear power question because that always comes up and, um, and it was mentioned uh, at the beginning, you know, nuclear power. I mean, one of the obvious things that people think about when they think about converting nuclear weapons companies and, and, and facilities to green energy, they think, oh, well, we've got nuclear power. We just move the nuclear engineers to the nuclear power plants and make lots more nuclear power plants. Well, you know, I have a whole section devoted in the book to why this is not the, the answer to climate. Um, for, for a number of reasons. I just list four of them. But, you know, the first is um, is, is the waste issue. And um, although um, nuclear power plants do not produce carbon directly, I mean, they're, they're certainly um, implicated in, in um, the whole fuel cycle. But um, I just want to read you um, one uh, quote from my book so you get a flavor of the book. Um, and this really is the, you know, the nut, nutshell of the, of why I personally uh, 
argue against nuclear power as a solution to the climate crisis, and that is this. If there is one overriding lesson to be learned from the climate crisis, it is that we cannot produce things of value to society without also paying attention to the waste products we create in the process. Ironically, carbon dioxide is one of the least toxic of all the many waste products created by modern industry. The most toxic of them all is the high-level radioactive waste from nuclear power plants. And that is, in a nutshell, why we've got to think very carefully about nuclear power. We're, we're creating waste that we don't know yet what to do with, um, that will remain radioactive and lethal to humans for literally hundreds of thousands of years. We haven't even got history uh, going back more than 6,000. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of years when we don't know what people, what language people will speak or what, you know, anything. And to keep it out of sight, out of view, and safely protected. I mean, we can't even protect a nuclear power plant in Ukraine, uh, which turns out to suddenly be in the middle of a war zone. Um, this, this, um, you know, this is a crazy, crazy approach to trying to create energy. We, we've just got to stop burning fossil fuels, and we've got to stop uh, playing around with uranium, and we've got to put it back in the ground and leave it and, and, and move on. Um, there are many other reasons why um, nuclear power is not a solution. A second one is that it takes so long to design and get approval and then build nuclear power plants. The only nuclear power plant that's open in this country in the last 20 years is one in Georgia. And it took 20 years for them to, from scratch to, to actually operating that power plant. And uh, we don't have that kind of time. We, we have to be working now on solving the climate crisis and moving away from fossil fuels. So the time factor is another one. The third one is that um, uranium is, is not a, a, a fact. The irony of, of nuclear power is that we're running out of uranium. I mean, there's still lots of uranium in the ground, but it, it, the, the longer we mine it, the... the, the um, I'm trying to struggle for the words here. It's you know the the less concentrated it is, you know the more the more you know the the best uranium has already been been mined, so it gets less and less concentrated, and you have to refine it. Now, people don't realize this, but refining uranium to the point where you can use it for nuclear power, let alone for nuclear weapons, which takes a lot more refining. This is a hugely energy intensive process. The, um, a lot of our uranium comes from Australia, and the single largest consumer of electricity in Australia is a, is a uranium enrichment plant. It takes huge amounts of electricity just to refine the uranium to use it in a nuclear power plant. And this, this called, there's a thing called the energy cliff, which compares um, uh, the amount of electricity it takes to refine the uranium compared to the amount you'll ever get out of it from a nuclear power plant. And at some point, and we're reaching that point quite soon, the amount of electricity it takes to refine the uranium is more than you'll ever get out of that uranium from a nuclear power plant. So it's crazy. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not producing electricity, it's consuming electricity. And then the final point that I make in the book is about cost. As, um, as uh, Spencer said, you know, the cost of nuclear power is already higher than any other source of electricity. So to think that we're going to somehow move to, to nuclear power to solve all our electricity problems is crazy. 
And in fact, even that cost is heavily, heavily subsidized. If the new, if the government of the United States did not subsidize the uh, insurance for nuclear weapons for nuclear power plants, there would be no no nuclear power plants now. They would all shut down because they can't afford uh, the insurance required for any kind of accident, let alone something like Fukushima or Chernobyl or something. So. Um, so that's that's the story uh, that I have about nuclear power. I'm happy to take questions. I'm sure you have a few. People in the room are invited to come up. We, if you have questions um, here on my my right, I guess. Listening to the Dr. Wallace, I, I have a. Would you comment on the idea that the corporations that are running the the show that you're just discussing, especially Honeywell and like other uh, DOE contractors, um, the, there's a corporate language issue that, that they, fa they face. Uh, and there's another, there's a book by Catherine Rudy Herringen. Herringen. It's, about, it's called Declining Demand, Divest Divestiture, and Corporate Strategy. And it's all about in-game planning. Uh, and I, I, I'm wondering about, because the these corporations have a difficulty in communicating the idea of changing the direction of their actions so they 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 suffer from what they call psychologically negative transfer they don't want it they do not want to so would you discuss the idea of the kind of corporate language required for in-game planning for the the companies involved in the in the in the destruction or use of all these nuclear issues that you discussed. Well, um, I do have a PhD, but I don't understand any of the the the, the words that you're using. <laughs> I mean, can you can you explain what you mean by in-game planning? What's what is it? Uh, well, it's when the corporation realizes the direction they're going. Um, examples of um, of the um, the the the. The in-game planning for the settlement industry, in-game planning for the rayon industry, in-game in-game and baby foods industry, when they're making products that are no longer are not going to be sustainable in the long term. Yeah, yeah, so especially they, fossil fuels, right? What are the fossil fuel companies going to do, going to do after we do right. away with fossil fuels? Are, but I think that it's a communication issue with them. Is that they they need to have that language. Explain it or be start taking up that kind of language. But it's not just communication; it's 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 real. What are they going to do? Uh, you know, they have to yeah, migrate yeah. to some other some other form, something else. I mean, we you know the, uh, the, the there's a lot of greenwashing going on. As for example, I mean, when you talk about communication, you know, all all the all the companies, including the fossil fuel companies, are are um, facing you know public. Um, displeasure at their their behavior and their their priorities and they're they're all trying to um uh, communicate that they're about um you know moving to green this and green that and um uh so i'm not quite clear i mean that that but that's just another another form of obfuscation and 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 um uh you know trying to confuse people about what they're really doing because they're not really changing their behavior I mean, um, interestingly, I mean, I can talk about what happened in the 1980s because I did do my PhD research on this, actually. 
um, you know, in the 1980s, at the height of the Cold War, um, we had companies uh, like Ford Motor Company, General Electric, uh, Westinghouse. They were all making nuclear weapons, all of them. Uh, Morton Salt Company. Um, and they suddenly found themselves faced with um, with huge public pressure, uh, including boycotts, like you mentioned, the, with the, the baby formula and so on. Um, and many of them pulled out completely from the nuclear weapons business. They simply don't, you know, they, they didn't like, it was a small percentage of their, of their overall business and they didn't like that kind of public pressure. And so they, they pulled out very publicly. I mean, Morton Salt faced a, um, a boycott of salt. Morton, I mean, it was Morton Tycol was the company. They sold the Tycol to another company, which still makes rocket engines, but I mean, Morton does not anymore. Um, Ford Motor Company sued Marin County in California over their campaign to, to boycott Ford Motor Company. And they, they tried to say that it didn't have anything to do with nuclear weapons. And they, um, and they, they lost in the, in court over that. Uh, and General Electric, uh, which faced probably the biggest campaign because people said, you know, we're not going to buy your light bulbs all across the country. This was in the late 1980s or you know, around 86, 87. And um, General Electric, you know, quite publicly pulled out of the nuclear weapons business. And if you go on their website right now and Google nuclear weapons, you will find a web page under General Electric saying, we don't have anything to do with nuclear weapons. We're, we're good. Keep, leave us alone. You know, we're, 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 we're a good company. And, you know, we've, we've already seen that starting to happen now in the nuclear weapons industry. Um, two, two companies have pulled out. I mean, we don't know. You know, I mean, there, there's always mergers going on and other things. Um, but ACOM, which is a very large, uh, you know, con general contractor, builds all kinds of, you know, roads and airports and so on and hospitals. You know, they had they had contracts with the nuclear weapons business and they pulled out. Um, another one in, in England, Serco, has pulled out. And they, they actually did say very publicly that they don't want to have anything to do with nuclear weapons. Um so, you know, those are the kinds of practical things. Um, and, and I talked about the jobs, but not, there's another, another piece of this which I didn't mention, which is that um, we will need um, a certain proportion of these companies and the workers who know about nuclear weapons for, you know, the indefinite future to actually dismantle and monitor and make sure we don't ever have nuclear weapons again and make sure that the ones that are, exist are, are safely dismantled. So um, there's that side of it. But, um, you know, I, I can't really, I'm sorry, I can't really comment on the, on the psychology of it. I, that's not my, my area. The, the, mm -hmm. the, the, we have some other YouTube questions here. Okay, but, uh, no, go ahead with okay. the YouTube questions. Um, yeah. Um, well, uh, Alex is asking, um, what action would you recommend we commoners should take that would have the most impact? Okay, well, that's a question I can't answer. Um, we we have a we have a Warheads to Windmills campaign, and you can go to our website warheadstowindmills.org um, to see what we're what we're up to. I mean, we're trying to get people to write letters. First of all, it's a very easy thing to do, but it does have it does make a difference. I mean, the members of Congress, uh, you know, we have we have support in Congress, but it's very small, and they need to hear from their own constituents. So I don't know who your members of Congress are, 
uh, in that area um, offhand, but I mean, they need to hear from you. They need to hear that, you know, we've got to move away from fossil fuels and nuclear weapons. And, you know, there's no time to waste on this. we got to move and um, we need to build support for that. So there's bills in the in the Congress. There's bills in, in as I said, in some states. Um, there's also work at the city level to get resolutions passed. Or you know, I don't know if you know any of your city councilors or mayor or whatever. There's um, actually Des, Mo- Des Moines, Iowa, is the center. Uh, the mayor of Des Moines, Iowa, um, is the the president of the Mayors for Peace, which has over 200 cities in in the in the U.S. and thousands across the world who are um, in solidarity with Hiroshima and Nagasaki saying, you know, we don't want any city ever again to face this terrible catastrophe. So we're, you know, we're committed to a world without nuclear weapons. And you can get Kansas City on that if they're not already. Um, other towns. And and, um, and then, as I said, you know, our, our, our big emphasis as a campaign is focused on these companies because, um, Churches have investments in these companies, uh, schools, colleges, um, pension funds, banks. You know, you, you, every single person on this call is connected with something that has an investment in one of these companies. And we've got to work on divestment. And we've got to work on, on pressure, you know, bigger forms of pressure, like I said, boycotts. So um, Honeywell, uh, as an example, you know, um, used to make thermostats and probably everyone on this call has a Honeywell thermostat. Uh, we, we do. <laughs> um, we started a campaign to write to Honeywell saying, you know, we're not going to buy your thermostats anymore if you keep making nuclear weapons. And instead of going out of the nuclear weapons business, they sold their thermostat division, which is not what we wanted, but uh, it shows you the kind of impact that citizens can have. But they do, but they, so they don't make thermostats, but they do make lots of other things, including medical equipment for hospitals. And there's a, you know, doctors are a key constituency for and medical medical staff, very key for um, uh, the nuclear and the climate issue because they know about, they know the dangers that we face and they they want to. So I mean, working with your local hospital to stop, make sure they don't buy equipment from Honeywell. Honeywell also makes muck boots uh, and other other kinds of, you know, products, safety goggles and things like that. So, I mean, there's ways of boycotting or putting pressure on them. Um, but I'll let you move on to other questions. Thanks. We have another one, um, Richard Thompson. Um, how, how can we frame renewable resources with language to make them more attractive to voters, calling them green jobs, et cetera? How can we frame renewable resources to make them more attractive? Well, I mean, we're talking about our survival and we're talking about our children and our grandchildren and what kind of future they have. I mean, I don't know how how much more to say to voters. I mean, you know, it's uh, this is this is not just like a choice. You know, do we want to keep burning up the planet or not? You know, we, we um, you know, there's a lot of education to do and. Um, and that's why I wrote a whole book, you know, because it's, it's hard to explain these things um, in a soundbite to people. But, um, you know, I mean, it, they're cheaper for one thing. I mean, you know, in terms of attracting voters, um, why don't we just say, let's move to an economy where there's more jobs and electricity is cheaper. How's that? <laughs> 
<laughs> good point. Good point. Um, this is another question is, um, um, why use the Department of War Double Talk uh, National Security Campus? Uh, can we just call it the Kansas, Kansas City Atom Bomb Factory? Well, that is a good point. I mean, there's, there's, you know, this, I mentioned the greenwashing. I mean, it's all the same thing, you know, Department of Defense, you know, National Security. Uh, I mean, these are weapons of mass destruction. So even an atom bomb factory doesn't really, doesn't really um, convey, you know, the, the fact that we're talking about, we're talking about mass destruction of human beings, of civilians, not cities. And it's, you know, it's, it's closer to Auschwitz than to, you know, an, an innocuous factory making, you know, making rifles or something. You know, we're talking about um, mass murder. That's what we're talking about. So I don't know how you put a polite edge on that, but uh, I agree. I mean, let's start talking about what it, what it really is. Um, well, well, one of the things that occurred to me as I'm listening to you uh, today is that the the Department of Energy had what they called a reconfiguration years back. And you may be familiar with it for like uh, Paducah facilities and uh, some of the, the environmental cleanup facilities uh, had re reconfigured like Hanford, uh, no longer making anything but doing uh, cleanup. And the same companies that were involved in making the mess uh, have contributed a great deal to taking on the, that cleanup process, and they're making tremendous amounts of money on it, and they're doing some interesting uh, work. And so I, I'm wondering if we're, if in a way, what you're guiding toward or wanting, suggesting, is that they're they're going to want to take this on. They're going to they they. I think we need to. That, that was the point of my end game strategy and your comment, the question. Yeah. So yeah. what do you what do you I think because I don't think the average guy in Kansas City or anywhere is going to start taking on building batter, carbon black facilities for making batteries. Um, there's a whole bunch of technical issues associated with it. And like you said, these companies know what know how to do these jobs. So we need to. Uh, your point is well taken, but I think that that's the. Uh, uh, I think that's where it's going to go. We're going to see these companies suddenly wake up and decide to do so. And you, well, would you comment further on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, we talk as a campaign about, you know, putting pressure on the companies, stigmatizing nuclear weapons, you know, make, you know, trying to force them because they're, they're very powerful. I mean, they're, you know, it's, these are trillion dollar industries. But at the same time, what we're actually trying to do is convince them that it's in their interest. If they want to make, continue making a profit and continue, you know, good jobs with good benefits and so on, they've got to move out of these industries that are, that are killing the planet. And with the fossil fuel industry, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of stranded assets, which means that, you know, these companies, the value of these companies are going to, is going to go down to, to worthless because they're based on, the value of the oil that's still in the ground, which they're going to be able to sell at some point. And if they can't sell it, then their their company is suddenly worthless. Now, the same applies to nuclear weapons. If the, if the rest of the world continues to join this treaty and make everything to do with nuclear weapons illegal, including financing them, then they, these companies are facing not only the, the sort of um, reputational risk, but they're facing legislative risk. In other words, they're, they're potentially 
engaging in illegal activities in abroad, and those activities could carry costs. And and all of these um, costs, you know, do add up to a to a company's, you know, market capitalization. You know, the value is based on all kinds of intangible factors, which they got to take into consideration. And so it's the, in their interest to move out of this industry and move in and be developing other things, which, as I said, many of them already do other other work. They just have to, you know, do some some switching. Um, I mean, we're targeting um, Airbus uh, at the moment in in uh, in Europe. Which is one of there's only two companies left in the world that make planes, make passenger planes, Airbus and, and Boeing. Boeing's in huge trouble right now, but Airbus gets only um, less than five percent of their income from building nuclear weapons for the French nuclear arsenal, and so you know they're under huge pressure all across Europe because you know Europeans are very much opposed to nuclear weapons in general, and they're facing this pressure like you know you wouldn't you could just Stop making the nuclear weapons and keep on making passenger planes, and you're going to overtake Boeing. You know, then this it's a it's a it's a very sophisticated business case, you know, for these companies to make this move. So, talk about the role of the media in sustaining the you know the failure of the media to properly communicate the case that you've made. Well, I'm going to show you another um, chart from the book. But somewhere in here, we have, oh yeah, here it is. So this is a chart that we have in the book, which shows the, the um, why, I mean, this, this is an attempt to just um, describe the congressional corporate media think tank complex, you know, that, that President Eisenhower warned about when he said, you know, don't let the military industrial complex um, run the, run the business of the military. And we now have, this complex that not only includes the you know military industries and Congress, but it also includes the media and and these think tanks and academics and so on, who are all part of this system to maintain the status quo, and it's it's driven by money. So you know we have these um, super PACs and and so on, and dark money that that corporations put into the media to to. Um, you know, advertise and to um, influence the, the editorial policies and so on. We have all these think tanks that are producing supposedly, you know, neutral or academic or scholarly reports that that say, "Oh well, we we got to keep nuclear weapons and we got to keep fossil fuels." Um, you know, that's that's all money pouring into to make that happen, and we don't have that kind of money and that kind of access to the media. So it's a it's a huge challenge. Um, you know, we're. I mean, one of the one of the other reasons for writing a book is not just for people to read it, but because it's it's one of the few excuses I get to actually get you know get some interest <laughs> uh, and get on the radio and so on. Because you know, you need you need ways of of reaching out. Um, local local media is hugely important for this because um, it's easier to reach and people listen. You know, to local radio and so on. Uh, local newspapers, you can get letters to the editor. But it is a, it's a huge, huge challenge, and uh, I'm sure you could say more. <laughs> okay, uh, George, any other questions? National security taxes are allowed under U.S. law and the World Trade Organization. Is there my thought about 
the members of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons can start taxing trade with companies and nations involved with uh, nuclear, uh, that have nuclear weapons and just gradually increase those until they're completely disconnected from uh, anybody that has anything to do with nuclear weapons. Your comment. Yeah, well, that's a great idea. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, part of the reality of the world trade, you know, the world system is that the U.S. is still, you know, hugely powerful in terms of of its influence on the dollar as a as a as a trading um, mechanism and so on, and um, and all countries, you know, including our adversaries, are are wary of of um, you know being cut off from U.S. trade, basically, and so the the countries that have already signed on to the to the nuclear ban treaty, for example, um, I mentioned Ireland. You know, they're they're totally on board to do what they can to put pressure on the companies that are making nuclear weapons, but they're very hesitant to sort of get on the wrong side of U.S. government as such. So, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a hard project. We're we're working on it. I mean, we just had the the second meeting of the treaty in in New York just um, a couple months ago. And, um, you know, my, my, my own, I mean, our Warheads to Windmills coalition, actually, our, our goal there was to try to push more of the countries that are in the treaty to do what Ireland's already done with the, with the law that makes it, you know, not only illegal, but put, puts a really heavy penalty for having any, any connections to nuclear weapons. And if more countries do that, that would start to make more of a difference. And the more countries that join the treaty and the more pressure they put, the more we will have have this um, pressure building on U.S. companies. And and our strategy overall to get rid of nuclear weapons is a, is a sort of pincer movement from countries outside the United States who sign this treaty and enact legislation to make pressure on these companies. And pressure from inside the U.S., um, through divestment and boycotts and uh, cities and faith communities, you know, and universities getting involved in pressuring these companies. If they feel the pressure from inside and from outside, I think that's going to be enough to really shift things. And George, do you have um, another question? I was real intrigued with your your comment about the um, uh, shortage of uranium. I think our children are going to be, our great-great-great children are going to be embarrassed for us for having wasted this with this resource, and that uh, would you comment more about the potential scarcity in the long run for the use of uranium? And that we have many, many people that know about nuclear medicine and the like. Will we really come up to a shortage of this material for the beneficial use of mankind? Well, that's a that's a great question, and it's similar to the question about fossil fuels, actually, because. Um, we've got to stop burning fossil fuel because for no other reason than we need the remaining fossil fuels for um, not only medicines. I mean, fossil fuels, you know, are used for, for all kinds of things, paints and, and, um, and um, plastic lubricants, you know, all, all, all kinds of things that we need uh, that aren't involved, that don't involve burning it and, and using it up. And the same with uranium and other other resources. I mean, um, 
there are uses, important uses of, of um, uh, I mean, I, I don't know that much about, um, uh, you know, radioactive medicine, but I, but there are uses. I don't know where the, the, the different kinds of, you know, thorium and so on, you know, they, but they, but they, um, you know, those resources are needed in the longer term for other uses that are, that are important, you know, and um, if we just burn it up, I mean, the, the the problem with uranium and with nuclear power is, as you, as I'm sure you know, is that, you know, they refine it and refine it and refine it to get this, this um, material that is highly radioactive, not too radioactive, for for use in the in the power plant, and then they put it in there um, to heat up. You know, the, the you put them together and they get very very hot, and that boils water and that makes electricity. However. As you put them together and they heat up, they also decay into all these other materials like plutonium, which they use for nuclear weapons, but all kinds of other highly, highly radioactive materials, which are then, you know, it's it's kind of polluted, it's wasted, it's all, it's all, I mean, in the future, they might want to extract the uranium back out again somehow, or, you know, do other things with it. But it's, you know, both burning of fossil fuels and burning up of uranium in the long term for the humanity is 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 wasting these really important resources that's what you're what you were getting at yeah spencer okay uh do you have another question george or i'll go to the no, next go ahead go ahead okay so you how is climate change an ex existential risk uh i know that it's it's serious but i don't see how it's existential like nuclear weapons nuclear if we get a, a nuclear war between the u.s and russia simulation estimates that something like 99 percent of the northern hemisphere um will starve to death if they do not people uh, will starve to death if they do not die of something else sooner worldwide it's over 80 percent and over 90 percent of so the fatalities will be in countries not involved in the nuclear exchange <laughs> But but how is how is how is climate change an existential risk? Well, that's a good question. I, I, uh, it's not chap chapter one is an introduction, but chapter two is exactly that question: Why isn't climate change an existential risk? And um, you know, it's not an instant risk in the way that nuclear war would be be. Um, but you know, if we if we look at the longer term, and it's it's hard to. Um, to do this because most of the research and most of the reporting that's done on climate is only looking at this century. So for example, um, you know, there are estimates from the IPCC as to how much sea level rise would occur between now and 2100 if we don't bring um, the carbon emissions down to a certain level, which we're nowhere near at the moment. So we're talking about centimeters, you know, one foot, two feet, maybe three feet of sea level rise, which will inundate entire countries um, like Tuvalu and Vanuatu in the Pacific, and it will cause huge damage to uh, places like you know the east coast of Florida and the coastal area of Bangladesh, where there's more than a hundred million people will be affected. But it's not it's not the end of the world, as you say. However, we are on track. I'm afraid to say, if we don't deal with this much more urgently than we are we are on track for major tipping points in the global uh, ecosystem like for example the melting of the polar ice caps 
Now, this is not going to happen between now and 2021. So, you know, we're talking longer term, but we're talking about things that set in motion and we're not going to be able to stop them. And if the polar ice caps melt, we're talking about sea level rise of not three feet, but 200 feet. And that not only means huge, you know, most of the world's cities are within 200 feet of the sea, um, but also, you know, it affects the climate in terms of growing of crops. It is going to cause massive famine, huge, huge amounts of migration like we've never seen in history. I mean, you know, we've got 100 million um, refugees at the moment, but we're talking about billions of people on the move. And, you know, Bill McKibben, for example, says, you know, climate is an existential threat because ultimately it's going to lead to nuclear war Yeah, because of all the, all the upheaval that this is going to create. But it could also kill us purely from the, the, the death of the ecosystem and yeah. the fact that we don't have, we can't, we can't grow food. And, and we are out of time. Next week, the Director of Public Safety for Kansas City, Missouri, will describe how the city is collaborating with a number of other organizations to reduce violent crime to make Kansas City, Missouri safer in 2024 than in the recent past. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Timon. Thanks for listening to the All Souls Forum. Join us next Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. for another episode of the All Souls Forum. In the meantime, stay tuned for A Taste of Tejano at 8 p.m., followed by Noche Magica at 10 p.m., right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio.